insight, knowledge, sober analysis. Yes, Jana Gafiotov's podcast is just over there. Thank you. Welcome to another edition of Lockdown Football. Will Downing with you alongside Mark Rodden, Dimitra Zulai and Stefan Joni. And today as well, Michael Clark from BBC Northern Ireland, from Virgin Media Sport and from Lisbon's 98FM because we've got a lot of discussion about football both in Northern Ireland and the League of Ireland today. Uh, first of all, Northern Ireland, just like... The Republic, a change of manager. Michael O'Neill departing in the past 24 hours after nine years in charge. He'd done a job chair for the past season alongside his full-time role with Stoke City. But with Euro 2020, the playoffs and the final tournament being deferred a year, or at least the finals are, he departs after 72 games in charge, 26 wins, having guided Northern Ireland to Euro 2016, the first major tournament in 30 years, got out of the group, reached the last 16, but lost to Wales. And that after having a very successful time in the League of Ireland, being a League Cup winner and a Satanta Cup winner with Shamrock Rovers. Um... So, Michael, from a Northern Ireland perspective, very sad to see him go prematurely. Well, that's it. You know, we were hoping that he would be able to stay a little bit longer. Um, he's done a great job of illustrating just how successful he's been. And his record with his side has been incredible. Um, you know, if you look at his qualifying stats for the last two European campaigns, um, played 18, won 10, drew four, lost four. For Northern Ireland to win the majority of their games at any stage in any competition, let alone uh, European qualifiers, that's something really remarkable, something I probably never expected in my lifetime, if I'm being entirely honest, because, uh, you know, when I was growing up watching Northern Ireland, scoring a goal was nearly an achievement. And I know that might sound slightly patronising, but it's the truth. Um so to have a manager that all of a sudden turned you into a winner that got you into the Euros and, you know, France is obviously the highlight that everyone uh, looks back on very fondly. We, we just wanted it to continue as long as possible, but everybody sensed this day was going to come. And un- unfortunately, this week's the week it's had to happen. Uh, was there going to be any scenario where he would have been allowed stay on or wanted to stay on uh, for another six months, nine months? No, I think we all had pretty much resigned ourselves to the fact that if we didn't qualify for the Euros, he was gone. And if we did, he would stick around for the Euros and then leave. So nobody really believed that we would get him to, say, Christmas or whatever other date in the future. So as soon as the coronavirus stuff happened, to be honest, I thought at that stage, um, both himself and uh, Mick McCarthy, I thought that's going to be both of them away. And that's ultimately what's proven to be the case, isn't it? I mean, it's remarkable because when he came in charge, he'd been at Shamrock Rovers for two or three seasons. And even back then, despite the fact that Pat Fenlon and Stephen Kenny had gone into the Scottish League and had got Dunfermline and Hibernian to various cup finals, it was still seen, I think, at the time as as an unusual move. Yeah, I mean, quite often, you know, you, you get, oh, here's your new manager, right? Who is he? What's he done? And there were probably a few skeptics i think it's fair to say and look even in days rain people were still doubting him there were people calling for him to be sacked um former northern ireland managers probably were looking and going you know his record's worse than mine why was i being hounded and, and being 
chastised for how we were doing when he's doing even worse. But uh, thank goodness the Irish Football Association stuck with him and had patience and obviously saw something in him and believed that he could do do big things. And that proved to be the case, but it, it took an awful long time. I mean, that win against Russia was a turning point in itself, you know, getting that first win after such a long wait um, in rotten conditions against Fabio Capello's side. It was a win probably none of us expected, but you get that and all of a sudden you're thinking, oh yeah, that's what it feels like. And it wasn't smooth sailing after then either. You know, we still, uh, was it the month after, we're beaten by Luxembourg and, you know, so there were little signs and, but from there um, we, we gradually got better and then a, a snowball effect, but it was, I think it really shows his man management and his ability to, to form something out of not very much. I mean, you look at the players he's had to draw from over the years, it's, well, could you say it's the the thinnest squad out of any of the home nations? I think you probably could, and yet he was managing to outperform many of them. Do you think that he was able to win over the Northern Ireland public very quickly, or, or had it taken a number of years? Like when you were heading in towards Euro twenty sixteen and getting Northern Ireland qualified, obviously he'd won everyone over by then. But there must have been a number of occasions when it would have felt as if you know the ship was going to hit the rocks, if you like. Yeah, definitely. I mean, no, there, there was a there was a good period that he was in charge. I mean, you know, you're losing the majority of your matches. You're thinking, have we seen much of an improvement here? Northern Ireland fans are very good in that. You know, we don't. We're not Brazil. We're Northern Ireland. That exists for a reason. We do not expect to win everything. We do not expect to be at every major tournament. So there is a degree of forgivingness right from the off okay well we're getting beat a bit that's what we kind of do after a while you start to think well this is going to be no different than maybe any other manager so i don't think that people didn't trust him or didn't like him i just think that nobody right from the beginning or very few people could see what was going to come because it just i think from the outside looked like it just appeared out of nowhere all of a sudden winds were following each other which was a bit of a pinch yourself moment in itself. Because there had been a few bright moments previously, a couple of good qualifying campaigns under Laurie Sanchez and, and Nigel Worthington. There was the win over England. There was the win over Spain. Um, but the successes, I guess, just couldn't be continued because after a while they'd be tempted away by English clubs, which for O'Neill, until Stoke last year, it never really happened. That's it. I think actually amongst journalists people were maybe surprised that it hasn't happened sooner because we could all see the job he was doing and if you look at any sort of twitter thread where anyone's complimenting michael o'neill over the last couple of years particularly during and after the euros northern Ireland fans were saying he's not very good oh no you wouldn't like him i mean and they were completely lying through their teeth they just didn't want anybody else copping on to what we were doing because there's still very much a belief in this part of the world that you know the British press are going to be most interested in what's going on in England, first and foremost, and we're a little corner that can sometimes be forgotten about, which wrangles and annoys us most of the time. But when it's our manager and we're doing well, we're happy to be forgotten about and left in the corner as long as he can keep doing what he had been doing. And, you know, like when he came in, um, Nigel Worthington was on a really bad run, wasn't he? We'd won, what, two of our last 23 games under Nigel Worthington. So it's not like we'd been winning... 10 in a row and then all of a sudden O'Neill came in and struggled. Worthington wasn't getting it done anymore, essentially. It was his time to go, fair enough. He'd come under some criticism. Um, that decision was made. O'Neill comes in and it just kind of picked up where it left off, really. 
it took him some time to find his feet, but boy, did he. <laughs> Michael, is there is there any reason, did you get any sense at the time as to how uh, he turned things around? You mentioned that Russia win, but through that rough patch at the start, or even after the Russia game, was there a feeling that, no, I can see what he's trying to implement here? Yeah, the, I mean, there was moments where you look at results like that um, and you think, well, if we can beat them, then maybe. And uh, that's maybe where, probably because he's so analytical and so competitive, he probably believed it a lot sooner than anybody else. So um, I think that that's you know, one of his biggest strengths. Michael has this amazing ability to map things out to like a forensic level, the detail in terms of how you could change his set pieces coming into a game against one nation versus another and, and understanding the little chinks in the armour and, and really I suppose when you've got a squad that isn't as naturally blessed as the bigger nations you have to be very inventive in the ways that you can break other teams down or hold on to what you have or maximise what you have so for me that's really what Michael O'Neill did and it was it was when we started getting some good results he made the players believe they were bigger and better than what they were and it was that sort of belief that, that carried them and the structure um, because well we've done it before if we can beat this nation if we can play a certain way and, and do it against them we can do it against these yeah I just had a question for you Michael I mean um, when he started he lost against Norway 3-0 got hammered against the Netherlands 6-0 uh, what was the turning point you know by the IFA to say look we want to continue with you and I know he was offered in 2013 a two-year contract but what was you know the, the backing from the IFA and obviously the, the, to, to give that contract because yes you have some uh he has some results at some point, but uh, he's still a long shot, you know, to qualify for the uh, European Championship in France. You know, if you look at the results, you know, from, you know, when he started against, you know, Norway and the Netherlands, and uh, I know he, he got good results against Russia, but what was the turning point? So it's a great question. Um, I think the the IFA just had faith in him for whatever you know, for whatever reason. It's kind of weird because you look at it and you think, well. They must have. He must have done something right. I think he just impressed everybody on a on a personal level. Um, the, the Euro twenty sixteen qualifiers. That's when Northern Ireland for me really came into their own. You know. Um, but it, it was little results here and there. Um, for me, I can't really define a single moment. That I was probably we're all slightly cynical. I think in this part of the world where um, we kind of appreciate if it's a good time, it probably won't last. So. I don't know that from my own personal point of view, whether even when we were playing better, um, even if we lost, I don't know that I was thinking this is going to amount to much. It was when you get into a qualifying group and start to pick up results and, and really play well. And the fans of Windsor Park are singing, and now you're going to believe us. That chant, I think, is a very good message to anybody that's making any decisions. Well, if these you know, 18,000 people want everyone else outside to believe in them well then maybe we should believe in this manager so um you know they talk about the green and white army i think our supporters played a big part in, in michael o'neill's success too but that was how he was able to galvanize them and you know that's not to take away from anything he did and can we not, can we not you know qualify michael o'neill as a, a as a manager i mean obviously uh, uh you know head coach and national team is a different you know role as a day-to-day coach in a, in a professional club but uh is it a type of guy you can, t- you know, turn like average players to you know better players collectively? You know, having a kind of vision and, and pick and he seem seemingly from the outside, you know, and um, looking at you know players and the pool of players available. 
and uh, and for you know and for the clubs they're playing for as well across you know the the water. But uh, he has a tendency to turn you know like average players to competitive players, which is quite yeah. remarkable. Yeah, huge. I mean, in terms of you know your previous question, the turning point was probably actually the coming back against Hungary. You know, when you're one 0 down and time's running out, and Northern Ireland score two goals away from home and, and get a win, because um, it, it, it totally changes the feeling of the group. And obviously, that result helped Northern Ireland win their group. He's looking for players, and you think of how he's picking the squad. You know, he's not looking across the Premier League and going, "Well, there's lots of really good Northern Irish players here." He's looking all the way down the English pyramid, and then he's even looking into the Irish league, which you're now talking about, you know, semi-professional footballers. Um, so that was massively it. Like. I remember watching Northern Ireland's under 21s play a game, and Gavin White was getting a lot of interest at the time. Um, and in, in, the under 21s were against Spain and ported down. And Gavin White destroyed the left back, who at the time was playing for Espanyol. And I thought, oh, is this how good he is? Uh, you know, and can he can he do it in the senior side? And Michael O'Neill worked very closely with Ian Barraclough uh, at identifying players and being able to bring them through. And that's why you've seen opportunities for Paul Smith, Shane Lavery, Mark Sykes. Trusting young players, bringing them through has been something that he's done. And also changing the attitude of people who had been in losing squads. I think that's even more impressive. Young people are kind of, well, if you haven't been used to losing, then you're maybe not afraid of it. But if you've been in squads that haven't had success, how do you change the mentality of those players to say, well, look, maybe this is what we used to do, but now we're going to do it differently and now we're going to win. Um, and the, the transformation actually was happening in the senior team, and then all of a sudden in the under-21s as well under Ian Barraclough, because the under-21s weren't used to winning things either, and they got very close to getting into a major tournament, and they were, all of a sudden, uh, they lost 5-3 at home against Spain and then went out to Spain and won, and it just felt like everything was happening in and around these couple of years where football in this country clicked and the mood changed. For me as well, the the, the real success was the, the two things, actually, just getting so much out of the squad and then sustaining it as well, because I remember covering uh, Euro 2016 and talking to Aaron Hughes after their win over Ukraine. Uh, this is a guy who was 36 at the time. In January, he'd left Melbourne. He was playing his club football in Australia. He'd left in, in April, I think, but it was his first full 90 minutes since January was against Ukraine in the group stage of Euro 2016, a game that Northern Ireland won and won fairly comfortably really and that was just so impressive getting the best out of those players keeping them around and then sustaining it not just qualifying but getting to the last 16 and even if you look at qualifying for Euro 2020 like winning four games in a row Belarus and Estonia it's not that easy to do and then they were 1-0 up away against the Netherlands with 15 minutes to play as well so could have been different in uh, that qualifying campaign as well if they had just a bit more luck. You know, and the, the home defeat against Germany, Germany dominated the game. You know, don't get me wrong, Germany deserved to win it by anybody's estimations, but Northern Ireland easily could have got something out of that. You know, it was sucker punch timing for both of the goals. Big chances as well, didn't they? Uh, yeah, there was a, a really, I think it was Stuart Dallas missed a, quite a guilt edge chance that you'd normally expect him to take, but it really is bringing all parts together you know it's it's something that it sounds like a bit of an intangible really and you think oh well, there must be a secret here there must be something else but getting every single player to play above themselves is remarkable 
you know, it, it, it could sound like nothing, but it actually is everything. And that's why Stoke wanted him, I think. You know, you look at a man that can make every player amplify their performance, amplify their work rate, and buy in collectively to a style of play. And, and all of a sudden, the feeling going to Northern Ireland games, whether it was in France or in Belfast or wherever, was, I think we're going to win today. And Northern Ireland fans were just like, how much are we going to win by? Or do you think? Which, now, there'll be older heads maybe listening to this and going, well, I never thought we were going to win. But, you know, that's uh, that's just a habit, unfortunately. But he was somehow able to tap into all of that. But the players bought into it, and the age of the players is something else as well. Because, you know, Gareth McCauley and, uh, was obviously a sort of a senior statesman in the dressing room too. Other countries are looking. You look at what Germany did. They were able to just ruthlessly go, well, you're in your 30s now. We're, we're done with you and just start axing players that any other nation would chop their arm off to have. Whereas Northern Ireland are sort of going, I know you're 36, 37. Could you play another year or two, please? You know, the other ones, the other options aren't really quite ready. Because I was looking at one of their recent squads and Daniel Ballard is a name that keeps popping up, you know, an Arsenal youngster. And how many other international sides would take a chance on somebody who's a youth player at a club that hasn't had any senior experience, but he's all of a sudden becoming part of international squads and panels? That is what Michael O'Neill has to do. They have to really scar the UK for those good boys to, to, to get into the squad. And they might not play as much, but that's, uh, that's how tough the job was. Yeah, and I mean, Stoke City are currently 17th in the championship. They're three points above the relegation zone. So that's what he's obviously concentrating on when football comes back. But in terms of the job he did with Northern Ireland, uh, I mean, the FIFA World Rankings, 126th Northern Ireland were when he took over in 2011 hit a height of 20th six years later. I mean, there were some immense runs during that as well. And I suppose Euro 26 for Northern Ireland fans, having been 30 years since they were last at a major championship, something very special, something very, very memorable. It, it was incredible. And, the, you know, the, the whole run up to that was special. The, the win against Greece after that, when it was all sort of, we, we know we're going, was it was like a fairy tale. I was in the stand and there was a man, I had no idea who he was, and he just started hugging and kissing me. Uh, you know, when we when we went 2-0 up, I just got leapt upon and um, it was really emotional. It was just it was just a fantastic night to be there and we had a few scares that match as well, but the, the mood by then had already changed and you really, you went into that game nervous because of what was on the line, but not in any way doubting any of the players. Um, and, you know, it was actually after that game, I'd asked Aaron Hughes about his age and he, he sort of said, you accuse me of being a veteran. But I was uh, having to try and find a way to say, well, kind of, you know, are you going to be at this tournament? Because obviously people have been wondering about that. And the feeling is, and it's a bit like with Stephen Davis now, because people were saying this was meant to be, the, the you know, you get to the Euros and then you make a decision or whatever. You know, you, you get over 100 caps from Northern Ireland. You're getting on. What are you going to do? And. He doesn't want to stop. It used to be you had to twist their arm and then some to get them to play for Northern Ireland at times, and there were certain players were ridiculed for not prioritising international duty. Now, everyone wants to play for Northern Ireland that has a chance to. Um, and, you know, and that is what I think he'll bring to Stoke. I do think he'll, you know, well, obviously, if the league continues, I, th- I don't think there's any doubt that he'll keep Stoke up. I don't, I really don't have any issue with that whatsoever. He's just, the most laser-focused, determined, prepared person. And if he thinks there's anyone not adding to that, he'll get rid of them. 
Dimitro, your thoughts on what Michael O'Neill has achieved? Because he's also been a League of Ireland winner twice with Shamrock Rovers, revitalised them in their early days when they'd moved to Tallaght Stadium. Satanta Cup winners as well in 2011, which is something we'll be coming to very shortly as well, something that he shares with the under-21 boss in Barraclough. What have you made of Michael O'Neill down through the years? Well, I was at the game when Northern Ireland played Ukraine. And I can tell you what people were thinking before the European Championship in Ukraine. Okay, we'll lose to Germany, we'll beat Northern Ireland, and then we'll probably, in the last game against Poland, get a point and we'll qualify. So we did lose to Germany, of course. It was obvious. And then the second game, there was a lot of expectation. People didn't really understand what kind of team we were facing. Because I remember I wasn't commentating in that game. It was live on the channel I was working for at the moment, but I did the highlights package. And that hungry Northern Ireland game, 75th minute, they concede a goal. And usually you would expect Northern Ireland to be out of it. You know, they're playing away, they're playing a team that, of course, is among the favourites to win the group. And then McGinn and Lafford to get those goals. That was something unbelievable. But there was the first thing that uh, really struck me in that qualifying campaign. And then you win two more games in a row and you suddenly start nine out of nine. And the team was so well drilled. And again, people in Ukraine were saying, man, look at that squad. You know, they're all playing in the championship. Like, really? First of all, you know how I feel about championship, but it wasn't even about that. It was a very good side. And from the 20th minute onwards, we were absolutely outplayed in Lyon. Outplayed. Not a single chance. So the first goal was from the free kick. And it was Gareth McCauley who scored the goal. But it was something you would expect by that time. Second was a counter-attack late in the game. But it was a game that deserved to win. So that was Michael O'Neill to me. A very drilled, well-prepared side. And it didn't really matter, you know, where his players were coming from, what clubs they were playing for. And Northern Ireland national team, they had this golden period, 82-86, right? So that was the second one onto yeah. Michael O'Neill. So unfortunately, he couldn't finish this qualifying campaign, but that one was remarkable. One of the most memorable in the history of Northern Irish football. Absolutely. So, and I, I suffered that also in person in Euro 2016. But still, I think he is a great manager. And now we've stuck stock where in the relegation zone when he joined them, and they improved. And I think he will keep them up, and we can see what he can do in the next few years there if he stays there, of course. Well, on a personal note, on my side. Uh... Would you believe when I was I was watching uh, Northern Ireland against Ukraine, I was in Kililay in Northern Ireland with some <laughs> friends watching the game. And uh, Northern Ireland won 2-0. And what struck me, the people, you know, watching the games in the street, you know, in the streets, you know, the country went alive and uh, and they won. And uh, it was an amazing, it's an amazing story. Like, I mean, I think the last time the Northern Ireland competed in a major uh, international championship was in uh, 1982 in Spain and they lost against France 4-1. If you remember that, I know. Like for me, what, what what was important, you know, looking at Northern Ireland, it's the ability uh, to bring the players together. It was not sometimes, you know, spectacular football, but it was well drilled, tactically very astute. He knew the weak, you know, the, the weakness and the strength of his team. If you look at the qualifications and uh, and you know and going to France and the tournament, 
it was a very difficult team to break all the time. If you look, Devon lost, you know, by, you know, many goals all the time. And uh, it's credit to Michael O'Neill. And uh, I, I believe, like, and you can see from, you know, moving from Northern Ireland to Stoke City, the ability, you know, to uh, bring a team together, to pick the best players and, uh, and not, be, not being afraid to make changes, critical changes among the squad when it is required and needed. And uh, so I think he has a very bright future in England. And um, it's a sad story to see him living in Northern Ireland because there's more to it. And we, we saw it against, you know, the Germans and, and, and the, 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 the Dutch uh, and the previous qualifications was well, not finished anyway. But uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty, uh, well, it's an unbelievable story from a country who has a small pool of players. You have to remember that compared yeah. you know, to uh, the Republic of Ireland. The other thing too is, you know, it's not just a flash in the pan because there was obviously that, awful Nations League campaign where Northern Ireland fans very quickly wanted to forget it. And you come into a game against Estonia and you're thinking, well, it's actually been 18 months since our last victory in competitive international football. And, you know, that's March of last year. You come into that game, Northern Ireland beat Estonia 2-0. That is also a massive moment for Michael O'Neill because, you know, anyone, if, if Northern Ireland had just gone on a losing run from then, had it not got into a position where they could have been playing against Bosnia, um, well, should have already played Bosnia. Um, you know, we would then be saying, well, the Euros were good, but kind of never happened again. He, he somehow just kept this group of players, and it wasn't always the same group of players because obviously they had the Oliver Norwood wasn't always there. Then he was in and he was fantastic. And then obviously he decided to step away and they had to figure out what they were doing in that front. Their defense had to change with players aging and retiring, etc. So somehow to keep the form the majority of the time without always having your stars. Because Northern Ireland is not a team blessed with many stars. And it's also a team that, you know, if a Johnny Evans is out injured, you're right away at a disadvantage. You don't have another Johnny Evans to bring in. And yet the majority of the time he pulled off the results. And I'm sure if you spoke to anybody that's followed Northern Ireland, uh, including yourselves, you'd probably say you were thinking Northern Ireland had a chance against Bosnia. Whereas a few years ago, I wouldn't have said that. I'd have gone, well, Ed and Jacko, conversation's closed. You know, Bosnia are going to win. So among the candidates to be the new Northern Ireland manager, Michael, we're looking maybe at Ian Barraclough, the current Northern Ireland under-21 boss, Stephen Robinson, who's done a great job with Motherwell, Tommy Wright of St. Johnston. And of course, there'll be other candidates as well. Yeah, most certainly. And I think those that you've named, they'll be the the prime ones at this stage. You know, I don't really see the IFA looking outside of that. But the caveat to that is that when Michael O'Neill was appointed, he was the outside name in that list as well. So, you know, Jim Magelton's obviously said very vocally he would love the job if offered the opportunity. And there's something very refreshing about that honesty um, that someone would just come out and say it because usually managers are very coy. Um, and he probably would be the first to admit that he's quite keen to get back into management and he feels maybe that he's had a bit too much time out of it. Um, Austin McPhee's been mentioned as well, but for me, Ian Barraclough's the front runner, and that's just based on how well he's done with the under-21s. Um, he could also be described as a cheaper option. I don't think that that's necessarily the driving motivation, but the fact that he's already part of the IFA means he's right there, but he's a very talented guy. Um, I, as I was saying earlier, followed him with the under-21s in their qualifying campaign and how well they did in that. And I think he caught a lot of attention um, in Northern Ireland then, and people started to realise, wow, this guy's doing a serious job. Um, so his achievements there, and obviously um, no stranger to Michael O'Neill would make him very highly recommend it. Um, you look 
threw out some of the other names there. Stephen Robinson, um, he's been terrific with Motherwell. I don't think anybody could have seen how well he was going to do the Lisburn man. I mean, he's got them up to third, and Motherwell fans love him. And I think, you know, again, when you see a guy from here achieving what he's achieved in a relatively short period of time, um, again, you have to take him very seriously. And, and Tommy Wright, uh, I almost feel like Tommy Wright's getting that, not the justice he deserves in all these conversations because he's got the longevity over everybody. He is the guy who has been consistently delivering for the longest period of time out of all the candidates. And so I feel a bit for Tommy that he's being looked at as this outside horse when it's actually quite a while ago that he left Lisburn Distillery to go to St. Johnston and do a tremendous job there. So uh, good luck to the IFA. But what's nice about this is that there's no shortage of of good managers there and whoever they pick, I think Northern Ireland will be in, in safe hands. Do you feel that it's maybe leaning towards in Barclough at the moment? Because, I mean, no major negotiation you imagine would be needed, whereas if the IFA were trying to sign up the Motherwell or the St. Johnston manager, there would be quite a few talks needed and a, a bit of money as well. Yeah, and I would imagine that by June, the IFA will have approached a couple of clubs and said, we're interested in your manager. Would you would you allow us to speak to him? What would be the magic number if this was all to, to go ahead? And then it would obviously be a business decision too. Would the Irish Football Association be prepared to pay whatever compensation fee would be required by those clubs and how much would they ask? Would they ask a reasonable amount to allow the negotiations to happen? Would they ask for a ridiculous amount to almost ensure that they don't? Yeah, it definitely is a remarkable change over the past few years under Michael O'Neill. And as I was saying, he and Ian Barclough, the under-21 boss, have won the Satanta Sports Cup previously, the previous version of the All-Ireland Cup. And now there's a potential of an All-Ireland League. It's been rumbling in the background for the last year or two, but the body looking into the potential of North and South coming together on a league basis. Uh, they've been putting some plans together, all of which have been largely rejected on both sides of the border so far. So they've come up with scenario four, which a couple of the uh, League of Ireland following journalists got wind of last night, that the League of Ireland Premier and the NIFL, the NFIL Premiership, would go to 12 teams each. And in both... In both the League of Ireland and the NIFL, teams will play each other home and away, as happens at the moment. But that'll be a total of 22 matches. And from there, the top eight in the League of Ireland, the top six from Northern Ireland, would then break away into a 13-game series. The games within their own leagues would still count towards their own championships. But in the other breakaway series, the top four of that would go into a knockout competition to decide who would be the All-Ireland champions. Now, I know in the South... Those who follow the League of Ireland, Michael, have been following it with maybe a little bit of scepticism. Certainly there was a thought 15 years ago when the Satanta Cup was underway and was very popular for a good few years that an All-Ireland League was inevitable. What are the thoughts about it up north? You'll not be maybe surprised to hear they're divided, but they're maybe not divided in the ways you might think. I think the biggest clubs are the ones that see the opportunity to make money from it. And, you know, that might be part of what, sways their opinion are the ones that are looking at it and going, well maybe this is possible it's not a it's not a nationalist unionist thing you'd be glad to hear you know there are uh, some of the biggest unionist clubs are thinking well if there's a pot of gold here maybe maybe i want a bit of it and so that's why clubs such as crusaders have i think have been keen to hear what has to be said uh, i know an event was held you know by glen torren an information evening i don't know how well supported it was but you know 
certain clubs who have aspirations of growing even bigger and maybe clubs that are looking at going full time or are thinking, could this be our way to do that? The problem I think that they're going to have is winning over the majority of teams in the Northern Irish Premiership, let alone any of the teams thereafter. Because you're looking at what half the clubs in the league not making this split and they're thinking, well, are we having a reduced fixture list? Are we going to have a reduced gate? Um, what financial impact is that going to have on us? Because if you take games against Glentoran, Linfield out of the equation right away, um, your biggest paydays of the season are being chipped away at. And if I'm a smaller provincial club, do I want that to happen? I absolutely don't. So the biggest struggle they're going to have, I think, the uh, getting this across the line is making it financially worthwhile for every team in Northern Ireland. I mean, you could argue about the geography of it and the, the structure of the league and, and different things, but if it's always going to be the top six or whatever from Northern Ireland, it's largely going to be the same teams every year. Um, and I don't know that the other half of the league are going to be happy being left out. I mean, certainly in the Satanta Cup era, it was a massive novelty at first. I remember watching the first game, whichever our call was Glentoran against Longford Town. It might have been Glentoran against Linfield, actually, back in uh, 2005. And then for the second game, I'd got the call to work in it from Satanta TV. And that was me in the door with them. And I worked on the first game down south, which was Shelburne against Portadown, finished 3-3, absolutely incredible game. But the thing I remember so much is what a buzz there was going into the game and how full Tolka Park was. There was something like 9,000 at it. And it was the same case at Tolka for the rest of the Satanta Cup games. The final was held there as well, Linfield against Shelburne. And there was a feeling at the time that Northern Ireland's club football was quite strong and it stayed that way for about three or four years and then reflected in the European results it just seemed to weaken quite a bit. And maybe there was a little bit of interest in the North loss in the Satanta Cup. And also the Satanta Cup didn't help itself in changing its format every year and then change the time of year it was played in. And a lot of momentum seemed to be lost. It was a massive tournament up North, I remember. Even when we would go and cover games at, at Linfield, at Glentoran, at Portadown, at Dungannon, the crowds were huge. There was a massive buzz about it. I sort of looked at that option of rejuvenating the Satanta Cup, whether you called it that or something else as a bit more viable, to be honest. And I would have thought prudent to do it that way and kind of bridge it initially and get the the two associations working together and get both sets of teams playing against each other more regularly, but not regularly enough that if there was a problem, they couldn't fix it. Whereas restructuring the way the leagues work, because I think at the moment, certainly I'm only speaking from the Irish League perspective, but since the Northern Ireland Football League structure has been put in place in the last few years, there has been a rejuvenation in terms of the quality of the league, the, the standard of the title races and an increase in people attending games, which had been sort of gradually declining for quite a period of time and it's still not where it used to be. Um, so there's a sort of feel-good football factor in Northern Ireland in general um, before everything hit pause. So bringing in a cup competition seems very much like something people could go along with a lot quicker than, right, we're going to take away a third of your fixtures Right, you're not going to get that extra game against some of the big teams. Instead, you're going to, I guess, if you're the smaller teams, you're just going to play against each other. I don't really know how that works. Or it just stops. It, it doesn't quite seem fair. And, you know, I'm saying smaller teams, but I'm, I'm accounting for half of the top flight of football in the country. So I'm not so sure. I think 
I would love to see Linfield versus Dundalk on a, on a more competitive level. Um, after seeing the two legs previously, I think Linfield probably were a bit complacent after the first game and did not expect the drubbing that they were going to receive in the second. Um, I don't know that they would make that mistake again. I think we're in a position now where those fixtures would be more relevant and more interesting than where they would have been a few years ago. Um, but if they're going to push ahead with this idea, I could be wrong, but my feeling is that it'll be rejected unless certain teams try to break away. I think, I think you know, for my point of view on that, you know, if you look at the um, uh, the league in Northern Ireland, I mean, they need they need to get the agreement from the smaller clubs like Institute, Warren Point, um, Carrick Ranchers. I mean, don't get on Swift. What are they going to gain from the splits? And uh, um, that's going to be a, a serious issue. The same from the uh, the South and um, League of Ireland. Will some clubs will suffer from uh, from that break and. Uh, Ultimately, to me, that's the future. Uh, that's a discussion I had, you know, 20 years ago with um, a friend of mine who was playing League of Ireland, and um, we were talking about uh, having uh, one league in the the Ireland of Ireland. And uh, I guess if teams like Linfield, Carlin, Shelbourne, Shamrock Rovers, Pats, Cork City, uh, Bowes, if they want to be more competitive at the European level, yes, merging, you know, the two. Um, Leagues will make sense, but also uh, for the players because financially there will be more games. Um, you would expect maybe one club to qualify for the Champions League group stage. Who knows? I mean, that's something you should bring a bit of perspective, you know, to the league. The, the, the other thing is, you know, how are you going to pick, you know, the places for the Champions League, the Europa League? Is this going to be decided on from the Northern Ireland team, uh, the Northern Irish team, or the, the team from League of Ireland? We based on. I know in Wales they have the same system because some of the Welsh team will compete in the Premier League and Wales team will play in the regular leagues and then some teams can play the Champions League. So, you know, let's say Linfield will finish third in the Super League in Ireland. But as, you know, being the, the first team from Northern Ireland uh, in the table will be the first pick to qualify for the Champions League. And money will talk and TV rights will obviously will have a huge say to it because... Commercially, that's going to be a better and bigger league than you know the uh, Northern Irish League and the, the League of Ireland. So it's something that has to be looked at, you know, going forward. And to me, that's the only way forward if football wants to survive in Ireland in the long term run. So the way they would decide the European positions is that the League of Ireland and the Northern Ireland Premiership would remain separate. There would be two rounds of games in both divisions, so twenty-two matches overall. Teams against the League of Ireland sides in the All-Ireland League would then count also towards the League of Ireland and vice versa matches between the Northern Ireland sides would count towards the Northern Ireland League. So there would still be, I think, 28 matches in Northern Ireland and something like 33 games in the League of Ireland. And also those results would count towards the overall All-Ireland League to decide who the teams would be to go forward for the knockout stages. So basically, matches in the All-Ireland League section would count not just towards the All-Ireland League, but towards the League of Ireland and the NIFL as well. So what does it mean in English, Will? <laughs> I thought that was quite plain, to be honest with you. Um so essentially, if, if Cork City are playing Dundalk in the All-Ireland League, that would also count towards the final position in the League of Ireland, but also towards the All-Ireland League too. Um, after the breakaway point, 
<laughs> I don't like it. This is not complicated. This is in my head. This is very simple. Basically, the top eight. This is not difficult. The top eight in the League of Ireland, the top six in Northern Ireland, they would break away into the All Ireland League, but the matches against each other would also count towards their own domestic titles. Does that make sense? Can you yeah. go through it once more? Will? No. <laughs> Okay, can you, you know, I mean, on the, on the serious note, I mean, start, you know, but do you see, I mean, will each country like, or each league will have a representative in the Champions League? Yes, yes. To me, despite, okay, that's fine. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, to, to me, like, that's only way forward. I mean, on paper, if you have Linfield playing Swarovers or, or Glen Torrent playing against uh, Cork City or Bowes, that will definitely attract, you know, more people going to the games, you know, surely in the North or in the South. And, um, and and TV rights. Definitely, you can export the game, you know, abroad and uh, people could have an interest, you know, maybe in England or also, you know, in, in Europe on the, on the continent. And it's something, you know, should have been looked, looked at. However, as you know, like the FAI, I've been looking at, especially with Snow Queen, to uh, rejuvenate the uh, League of Ireland. So, the, the, of, of course, separate talks were taking place with the North, but ultimately with the League of Ireland, have different priorities now going forward. That's another question needs to be uh, to be uh, to be asked, and uh, it's going to be uh, maybe critical for the next you know a few years. But again, you know, looking at from the outsider, that's the only way forward if you want to have competitive football in the island of Ireland. Dimitri, what are your opinions on all this? Then I'm sure you have a few. Well, first of all, I, I was really glad to hear Michael saying that there will be no politics in it because I don't think anyone would want to see what happened in 79 when Dundalk played Linfield in the European Cup when the second leg was actually staged in the Netherlands because of the troubles uh, in, in, in the first leg. And it's really good that they think of how to choose the teams to, to, to be playing in the European competitions because otherwise that kind of competition would need an approval from UEFA. And if you can sort it out with UEFA because they're not really keen at the moment to now join in leagues and, and all that stuff. So basically that would be a very interesting concept, I think, for both leagues. For bigger clubs probably more than for smaller clubs, but it it can be attractive, it can be interesting because you did mention those uh, first Satanti Cup years and if it's a healthy competition if, no, it, 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 it's never hurting anyone and it can help uh, on all levels, maybe not only on the first team level but maybe if they have under 21s, under 19s competing against each other as well, that can be that kind of a structure that would help clubs in, in the Republic and in the North grow and be eventually more competitive on European stage, even though it seems very unlikely with the current format of European competitions. I mean, at the start of the season, let's remember, Linfield beat Carabag at Windsor Park. You know, Linfield had a fantastic European run uh, this season, um, certainly by their own standards, and That's only right. got Carabag very narrowly missing out and it ultimately came down to what a 92nd 93rd minute penalty they gave away at home um, Shane Lavery was remarkable that night and scored the goal where he ran half the length of the pitch before chopping in past the defender and blasting it past an international goalkeeper which uh, to commentate on was was quite quite a just a phenomenal moment because they, they weren't given a chance in hell I mean we were talking before that game and people are going what do you reckon 6-7-0 Carabag here you know they've 
you look at their European pedigree and who they've been up against in recent years and you compare that to Linfield and there wasn't meant to be any way around this bar Carabag walking it and that's not what happened. So, you know, the league in Northern Ireland certainly has been improving and, and gradually getting better and better. More clubs do seem to want to be full-time. Um, Lauren historically, this week, have been granted the first ever UEFA licence. Obviously, uh, they've got significant investments, have improved their, their stadium, their pitch, their players. Um, they have Jeff Hughes playing for them now, Mark Rando, people like that who, you know, will have played in England at a decent level. So there are more clubs, you know, in Glentorum with their backing as well. You're, you're looking and thinking, well, maybe there's four teams in Northern Ireland that could really grow and do something better. And that is why certain clubs, I think, will look at this proposal of merging leagues or forming a new league, whatever way you want to do it, as something exciting. Because then Crusaders call themselves three-quarter pro, which has been something they've been kind of chastised for ever since. Because what does that really mean? Because not all their players are full-time. A model that would allow all the clubs competing in this way to be full-time or to be closer to it would obviously be advantageous if there was increased revenue from TV companies and from you know different commercial aspects, sponsors and stuff. The money's going to talk. If the money isn't there, no one's going to buy into it. Um, and I know that's a bit crass and we all want to believe that it's the beautiful game and we just want to be the best we can be. But if it doesn't add up on the spreadsheets, it's not going to happen whatsoever. And I don't understand still why... If I am Dungannon, Swiss, Carrick Rangers Institute, Warren Point, Balamini United, presently, you know, etc. Why would I want to sign up to something which is going to see me lose money? Why do I want to sign up to something which amounts to, I don't know, a, a diluted national league? And, you know, oh, if you've won the league and you've played 22 games, well, we normally play 38. That's the worry if if the two leagues sort of merge almost and the big teams are in the top flight and that it's it's a precursor for all that. You'd hope that it will, on a European level, uh, increase competitiveness and stuff like that. I think where the Satanta Cup went wrong was, as Will mentioned, just changing formats and maybe having too, too, too many teams in it. You know, midweek matches and stuff like this, It's it's hard to generate interest in that kind of thing. On that, I wonder we've seen and a couple of us have worked on it in the last couple of years the challenge cup the petrifact training cup the iron brew cup whatever they're calling it these days how's that viewed where you are and has it made any difference at all to uh, northern irish football because certainly irish teams are kind of thrown in as an afterthought and certainly hasn't worked yeah i mean i think there's what the clubs say privately and publicly as well you know about going over and playing in scotland and i don't know that any of them are that interested I've seen them on when they're being interviewed by the Scottish press. I know it's just a wonderful opportunity to come over here and play, but the Northern Irish clubs are more than holding their own in any of the games that I'd watched. Um, so, you know, they, they proved their standard that way, but I, I don't know that anyone was that excited. It was sort of seen as a bit of a sideshow from anyone I spoke to. You know, it's, yes, we'll go and do this. Yes, it's nice if we win something, then you don't win it. And you kind of go, well, what was the point of bringing them over there? And we've now another couple of league games to to try and challenge for in a very tight competitive league as it has been. You know, up until early in the new year, there was five teams challenging for the, the premiership here. And um, that's really probably now down to two teams, providing the season goes ahead between Linfield and Corian. But before that, um, you know, you had Glentoran, Cliftonville in there as well. So it, it was just so much, so much riding on it. And I think now you look at uh, these, I, I'm not excited by it. And I know that's probably coming across quite clear, but I'm just not, 
I'm, I'm trying in my brain to think, well, how could this work? And the, the proposal to me just hasn't worked. That's why I thought, you know, if you want to offer an olive branch, putting some sort of competition together where you do bring the two associations together, where there is something worthwhile at stake, could be the way to do that if that's where the where the will lies. But I mean, all these little competitions where you're traveling about the place and you're almost a token entry. I, I don't know that anyone ultimately cares about them. I mean, nobody grows up dreaming to win them, do they? But that's the difference, I suppose, is it makes much more sense to me to be moving towards that a competition that will help the best teams improve compared to, you know, they've been in the Challenge Cup the last few years with uh, lower league Scottish teams. You know, it's a weird competition to start with. Uh, a competition that even Scottish teams don't really care about. A lot of them, they might when they get to a final, but a lot of the time it's just they're playing their younger players. It comes at a, you know, a bad time when they're in a relegation dogfight. They have this game where players could get injured. It costs Northern Irish teams money, you know, if they're playing away from home. Um, so at least if it's a Satanta Cup style thing or an All Ireland League, at least it's it's it should be helping clubs you know it should be helping finances and teams um you know help, help them to get more competitive on a european scale as well probably one of the main attractions of the satanta cup having worked on it basically from its huge days right at the start to the end where i think for quite a few clubs it was an afterthought the prize money in the first few years the first four years backed by you know the old satanta ireland and satanta uk the fact the games were shown across Britain on Satanta UK, who were your, you know, your BT sport of the day, if you like. Uh, the prize fund was huge, something like 300 to 400,000 euros. And you had bumper gates because you hadn't had an All-Ireland Cup competition for 25 years. And you had, I think it's fair to say, the best teams in it. You had the league champions, you had the cup winners, and you had the runners-up. And then as the years went by, after about four years, uh, I think Northern Ireland clubs were a little unhappy about the timing of the competition. So then it was brought forward to February. Then it was moved to an all-year-long competition, which I think hit the momentum a lot because when it was a two-month event, it had huge momentum. Then it was switched altogether to follow the Northern Ireland season and the matches were played at weekends as opposed to being played on Monday night. So then you were affecting the league fixtures as well. I just think it was tinkered with far too much. Probably the best dynamic format for it was probably towards the end when, you know, they were playing games on Monday nights. It was knockout and that was it. No, look, there's definitely some merit in it and um, it's the competitive spirit. You want to see who's the best. If they market it appropriately and say, look, here's a competition. If you win it, you could win a big prize pot, etc. That's probably going to work better than saying, well, I think we're just going to restructure the league where we're going to forget about half of you. You're here to make up the numbers for our domestic season. We're going to go off and do something better for the other half. That's kind of how it's going to look. Um, the earlier proposals where they'd said, well, maybe the bottom half could merge into this league and whatever. I mean, that was never going to be feasible. The geography alone was going to be a nightmare of trying to ask a team that was, you know, not even bringing in many home fans to travel halfway across the country and compete in some sort of other league was just never going to, never going to work. But Chairman I have spoken to of teams in the bottom half have, have said to me, not a chance, and there may have been another word in the middle. So how you win those hearts and minds, not so sure. I, I do think it's going to be a big challenge. I'm not against the idea of having more competition between the two leagues, but I, I think it's going to be a ha softly, softly catchy monkey scenario. 
Yeah, I mean, to me, like, uh, if I look at uh, the um, the population uh, from both countries or both associations in terms of uh, players, I mean, if you look at Denmark, Denmark is a population of 5 million people. They have consistently teams, you know, involved in the Europa League and sometimes, you know, the um, uh, Champions League. So there's no reason Ireland with both associations could not be competitive uh, with the new league and also at the uh, European level. I think to me, again, as I said previously, it's uh, the way forward and it makes sense financially for the clubs and for the players and to have full-time football and proper full-time football in, uh, in Ireland. Sad news during the week, the passing of David Bacuzzi, who played over 100 league games for Arsenal and Manchester City between 1958 and 1966, played with Reading for four further seasons after that, but for Irish football fans was best known as a very successful player manager at Cork Burnians, where he won the league title once in 1971 and the next two FAI Cups in 72 and 73. He was somewhat surprisingly dismissed in 1974, took charge of home farm for 10 years, guiding them to two FAI Cup finals, winning in 1975. Well, Trevor Welsh from Virgin Media Sport and Cork's 96FM joins us now. And uh, growing up, I suppose, Trevor, you've good memories of watching Dave play. Yeah, he had a very impressive standing in the game. Well, obviously, I was in a young fella. When he came to Cork, I was only six or seven, but I remember my dad bringing me uh, to Flower Lodge, and I was heaving. I mean, it was 12, 13,000 every game, um, every home game of Flower Lodge. But, no, it's a very interesting story, uh, because he, because uh, he arrived in Cork, I think, in the summer of 1970. He, was, uh, he came over from Reading, uh, where he played over 100 games. He was on his way to Bruges, in fact, to take up a coaching role, I believe. But he was sidetracked uh, by the chairman, I think John Crawley was his name, of Cork Hibbs, to see could he entice him to come in as the manager of Cork Hibernians. Um, so, uh, obviously, they sold, uh, they sold it to him in the end because, because he said he'd, he'd come for four days and see what they had to offer. But he stayed for four years. Um, as you know, he, he was a former Arsenal and Man City player. He played in the top flight for Arsenal, 55 appearances, I think, over five years. Uh, but he helped Man City to get promoted as well from uh, the second division. So, as I said, he had a good standing in the game. And when he came over uh, to Cork in, um, in uh, 1970, I mean, he was very successful. He came as player-manager. He was a left fullback from talking to guys who would have seen him playing down the years. He was a classy fullback, um, rarely missed a game. I think he played 176 times over four years for Hibs. He only missed 15 games, sent off once in his career. He was a classy, stylish uh, fullback. But, um, you know, he came to Cork with his full badges back then in 1970. And, um, you know, uh, he brought a, a great training method to, to Hibs. He was ahead of his time is what you'd hear from, from fellas, you know. But uh, he was very successful in that four years uh, with Cork Hibs. They won the league in 1971. In 1972, they were pipped in the last game of the season in a Munster derby against Waterford. Uh, famously, Carl uh, Humphreys, a court man, and, and uh, Pat Morley's dad, Jackie Morley, played for Waterford against Hibs. So they lost in the last. They nearly you know, won the title back-to-back, uh, back-to-back titles, 71-72, but won the league in 71, and then won the FA Cup back-to-back, 72 and 73. So, I mean, you know, he had a great record there, so it was surprising that he was, uh, he was sacked in 1974. I think Hibbs, you know, just expected um, success, and I think they finished fifth in the, in the table in 1974, and uh, he was sacked. And I mean, these were great days for soccer in Cork because there were massive crowds at Flower Lodge and, and maybe it looked as if, 
you know, the successes wouldn't end, but they did, and Hibs did also. Yeah, it became an all too familiar story, unfortunately. Financially, they ran into trouble, and they were gone, uh, Hibs, in 1976. But you're right, I mean, that, that Waterford game I alluded to, I think there was 26,000 uh, at that game. I think it's a record attendance uh, for a game in Cork, for sure. But as you know as well, Will, the, you know, the great uh, Cork derbies against Cork Celtic, and Celtic won the league in 74, you know, and there the, the were great derbies. But that Hibs team under uh, Bacuzzi, uh, had uh, some some really star names. I mean, names that you'd be familiar with. Noel Mann, who went on to be manager of Cork uh, City to win their first league title in 93. You know, you had uh, Finnegan, Lawson, Wiggy, the Dav, Carl Davenport, Maya Dennehy, and Marsden, Carl Humphreys, Dinny Allen, who played for Cork Hibs as well, the famous J star. So they were laced with star names, you know, really. And uh, probably, you know, not a weak link in that team. And, um, you know, there were, there were really great days. I mean, looking back now, it was the start of my love affair with the beautiful game, really. And I tweeted that after I heard of um, a day because he's uh, passing, because my dad brought me down to watch these names. I had scrapbooks, still have them up in the attic. I'd say these names roll off the tongue, like for any a League of Ireland Cork fan in particular. But, uh, you know, I've, I've been seeing tweets coming in all week from the likes of Pat's people, Bowles, Shelburne, and they all talked about how classy that because he was immaculately uh, turned out on and off the pitch, and by all accounts, he was a proper gentleman as well, you know. And, um, you know, he, he had Hibs battling for major honours in, in all the time he was there, bar, bar the final season, when, as I said, he finished fifth. But, you know, he, he worked as um, a manager for a travel agency as well, Tara Travel, uh, in the 70s. So he was manager there. Then he managed and played uh, for Cork Hibs. Um, talking historians will... The likes of Plunkett Carter and Cork, they were telling me that the players' wages back then would have been 30 uh, quid a week, 40 quid a week, because he was probably uh, on 100 quid a week as, as player manager and getting paid uh, as well as manager of the travel agent. Uh, so he was doing all right when he came to Hibs, you know. And uh, he went up to Dublin then and he opened up his own travel agency uh, with the experience he had, obviously, in Cork. And, um, you know, he went on uh, to have a success, successful period as well with Home Farm when he won the, the Cup at Home Farm. And he, he would have coached the likes of Ronnie Whelan before he went to Liverpool. Uh, so, I mean, he had a serious uh, CV as a coach. And I was talking to Brian Kerr recently as well, Will. And, um, you know, I let Brian know that um, because he had passed away, because Brian, as you know, loves his League of Ireland football. And uh, he's a great historian himself in League of Ireland football. And he actually told me, which I didn't know, was that because he gave me his first coaching lesson in 1970. And Kerr said he was ahead of the game back then. And he learned a lot from Bacuzzi and he was sad to hear of his passing I suppose one of the famous stories with Home Farm with Bacuzzi uh, was that he rejected Paul McGrath for Home Farm thought he wasn't good enough and wouldn't make it and then he went to St. Pat's I think that was around 1975 when um, Bacuzzi rejected him and he was forever reminded of it I'm sure (laughs) Yeah and isn't it funny though how he ended up in Dublin having made his name at, at Cork for a good few years and I mean Home Farm weren't you know, the biggest name. They weren't a glamour side, but he still brought them to a couple of cup finals and they had some great days in the sun and a few good European runs as well. Good age, yeah. I think, you know, obviously Home Farm a great tradition of schoolboys as well. You know, the underage stuff, youth football down the years. Um, I'm not sure how he ended up in Home Farm, but uh, obviously, you know, <clears throat> when, when uh, he was sacked with, um, with Cork Hibbs, he was uh, looking for work elsewhere and... Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, he opened up the travel agency in, in, in Dublin, and um, he spent uh, he spent a good number of years with Home Farm in the end. 
and uh, you know, the great track record there. But um, you know, you'd hear great things about uh, about him as a coach. You know, people had a lot of um, good things to say about him. Um, he was so well organised and uh, easy to get on with, and um, he was he was a proper gentleman. I know that uh, talking to uh, Carl Davenport, I had him on the radio in Cork after we heard that he passed away, and um, Davenport was kind of critical of him, but. Um, you would talk to other people and you'd say, you know, there, there was a lot of egos in the game back then as well, believe it or not. Like, yeah, you know, um, the, the English guys, for example, you know, they, they were full-time pros when they came over uh, from England uh, to play with uh, Cork Hibs. And Carl Davenport was left out of one cup final and he kind of had a go off because he then, you know. And he, he kind of mentioned it because he might have been jealous of him that he was on more money than him. But uh, I think that was uh, that fairy tale because, uh, you know, I just think because he had a, a, a richest at his disposal of, of uh, great uh, attacking players, as I mentioned earlier, with the likes of, you know, my Denny, a speed merchant, Wiggy was a speed merchant, God rest him, uh, Mars, Denny, Humphreys. I mean, he was spoiled for choice. And he didn't have to sign too many players, Will, when he came to Cork, because all those players were there, and he brought in a few local lads then, uh, you know, like the, the likes of Denny Allen coming to play for Cork Hibs. But uh, there were there were great days. And if you talk to anybody of a certain age now, you know, they say they, they were the greatest times to be following Cork soccer. And, uh, you know, I suppose because there wasn't a whole lot of distraction back then, we're spoiled for, for choice now what we can do, you know. But uh, it was just highlights of matches there back then. And live soccer uh, was huge. And um, Hibs and Cork Celtic, you know, the great derbies. And they were the big draws. Turners Cross, Teething and uh, Flower Lodge. And there was always the bragging rights then on, uh, on the Sunday night when it came to the big Cork derbies. And, uh, you know, there was there were pretty feisty affairs, like, in two really good cock sides back then in the 70s, you know. And George Best obviously came over for a, for a brief period as well to play in Cork. He did. Um, Bobby Tamling actually brought George Best over, I think, um, after a conversation with Paddy Mulligan. Um, I think, um, you know, Best agent uh, was in conversation with Paddy Mulligan, and um, he kind of fancied going to Dublin. But uh, Mulligan said, uh, you know, what does George want? And he said, he just wants a bit of peace and quiet, somewhere nice. Uh, you know, and he says, oh, Cork, uh, Cork could, could be a place. I know Bobby Tambling there because uh, he played with Chelsea with Paddy Mulligan. And uh, he said, look, Tambling is managing Cork Celtic. And um, that would be a great place, for you know, and you could chill out there maybe in places like Crosshaven and Kinsale. And um, it kind of appealed to Best then, and they, they paid him per match. And um, the, the old story with Best goes that, uh, you know, he, 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 he was shown the dressing rooms at Turner's Cross, corrugated iron, and uh, it wasn't the best, the best kept dressing room. So apparently he got togged off in a hotel. I think at the time it was, um, I think it was Morris Hotel, and he got togged off there and was dropped down the road in a Rolls Royce and uh, brought back in a Rolls Royce that's, that's the way the story goes but he played about three matches and uh, I, I remember I was at one of the games actually at uh, Turner's Cross and Cork Celtic got a penalty and everybody was screaming for George Best to take it because they wanted to see Best scoring a Cork goal and of course Bobby Tamling was uh, kind of uh, first everything and he went up and put the penalty wide and he never let it down but there was a story as well that the Shelburne chairman uh, at the time um asked when uh, Cork Celtic were travelling to play Shelburne in Dublin and the chairman rang uh, the Cork Celtic chairman and he said, you know, is, is George coming? He goes, oh no, he doesn't get paid for away matches. We just pay him for the home matches. And the chairman said, uh, when he found out that the best was attracting like 10,000 fans to League of Ireland games, he says, look, we'll pay best fee for this one. 
and uh, get him up to Dublin. <laughs> he played he played that match against Shelburne in Dublin as well. Thanks very much, Trevor. And he's also on air on Sunday afternoons on 96 FM in Cork with the score. Well, that's it for another week. Thanks very much to the usual team of Mark Rodden, Dimitro Juli and Stefan Joni. Thanks also to Michael Clark and Trevor Welsh for joining us for what's very much been an Irish special of lockdown football. As usual, if you liked it, please like it, please rate it and so on. Leave comments if you like and we'll be with you sometime soon. But until next time, it is goodbye.